Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And everyone, welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. Good morning, everyone. Yes, you're back. How are you, Kim? Uh, tired. <laughs> it's all that work you do. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, splendid weather out there. The um, <laughs> it's it, This is the best time of day, actually, when there's a run of very hot weather. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's like it should be in the middle of the day, I think. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, Solidarity Breakfast followed up the uh, vote down at uh, Melbourne City Council that criminalises homelessness in the inner city. Shame. Shame. And so we went down there. We got, uh, we'll give you a breakdown of what that vote was all about. We uh, went into the session, so we'll give you a little bit of uh, Robert Doyle explaining himself. And uh, then we'll get the reactions of homeless people and their advocates outside the uh, town hall. And uh, after that, we're after eight, we're going to have a chat with a guy called Luke Sinclair, who's one of my most favourite of, of people. He's from the Sticky Institute, and he has uh, an event going on at the same town hall on Sunday, which is such a weird reverse. Anyway, he'll tell us about the uh, celebration of the photocopier. Uh, fantastic stuff. Art. that I, I appreciate this. I, I uh, had a love affair with photocopiers, and uh, he continues it, so... After that, we've got uh, Kevin. This is the week that was. Oh, he's back. Yes, he is the lazy sod. <laughs> he started last week. Ah. Yeah, without you. Without me. Yeah. And okay, who... I can't throw stones then. That's exactly right. And then uh, in the last half hour, we've got the wonderful... Noah. Noah's back. That's Looking right. Looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. And uh, others are as well. So uh, don't uh, forget that uh, we're in the midst of a subscriber drive. so if, Brilliant. Yeah, we want four of you. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? 
Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Now, we did go down to the uh, vote and uh, what the vote was all about. Uh, you were aware of it. It was on your calendar. Yeah? Yeah, I was aware of it. Yeah, Tuesday the 7th this week, uh, Melbourne City Council's Future of Melbourne Committee voted move on laws designed to remove visible signs of homeless people in the CBD. And the bylaws uh, officers are being told that they can move people along. Voted, uh, they voted uh, the vote, the bias law vote, which has been dubbed a method of criminalising homelessness. Hundreds of people turned up and uh, and they had to move the meeting to a bigger room. They went to room two in uh, the uh, town hall and... Uh, they also had a whole lot of mainstream news camera people there. Uh, anyway, I spoke to Kelly from the Homeless Persons Union who spoke to us about what the uh, proceedings were all about. Okay, Kelly, you're from uh, the Homelessness Persons Union. Uh, we're outside the uh, council offices, uh, Melbourne Council Office. They're just about to have a meeting that's supposed to look at the future of uh, homelessness in the central business district. What's your feelings on this? What's your take? Oh, I'm just blown away. It's like um, a bad dream, you know, but it's actually reality. I can't believe that they're engaging in this uh, regressive approach. Okay, so what, what is the approach? What, what's the... So from what I can gather, it's three-pronged. The first is changing a, a bylaw to a local act where they're crossing out what they define as camping, say in a vehicle, tent or some other structure, and just saying that camping will not be allowed. So what that might mean is that someone's sleeping on the footpath in their sleeping bag or in their swag or just themselves may be moved along or may be fine. That may be considered camping. The second thing is that they're going to confiscate any item that's left unattended in a public place. So if people are out here basically living their lives on the footpath and they need to go to the toilet they might need to pop off and get some food and they might leave their their blanket there the council officers will have the authority to remove that item and if a person wants it back they have to pay a fee and the third thing is that the council want to um, roll out what they call an education um, campaign, but I call it a re-education campaign. They want to try and dissuade individuals from giving things to people experiencing homelessness. There was a really interesting statement that uh, they by the council that was reported that they weren't going to outlaw homelessness. And I was thinking, actually, it would be really great if they outlawed homelessness and they actually provided homes. That's right. Well, this, this will indeed criminalise homelessness. And, you know, I think that the, um, you know, if, if I visualise and I think that I, if I was in council, what would I, what would I do, you know, to ensure that um, the city was a, a, a public space for everybody? And I think they should be putting pressure on um, the Victorian government and getting them to, you know, roll out all the desperately needed uh, public housing. Right. OK. Thanks very much. Thanks. Yeah, well, that was Kelly from the uh, Kelly Whitmore from uh, she's our fellow uh, broadcaster here at Three CR from Ruminations, which is on on Thursdays. That it's the only program for uh, homeless peoples, their voice 
on radio out there mm. for people to hear. We uh, we went in to the uh, the meeting, and as I said, there were hundreds of people there, and everybody that was there and who spoke to the actual uh, 6.2 uh, uh, line item, effectively, on the agenda was uh, against the uh, proposal. People had put in submissions, but then there were others who stood to talk about it, and this included homeless people as well as advocates. Uh, I do have extended uh, uh, recordings of those uh, speak people speaking. I'll, I'll work out ways of making that available to people. Uh, and uh, it's such an uh, incredible issue of um, importance that uh, I mean, you've got to remember that that you know there's 25,000 homeless people, uh, with you know 33,000 people waiting for public housing. In uh, it's not like a, a small issue. Uh, mm. The um, the fact that uh, people, uh, you know, a municipality is uh, deciding that it wants to. Uh, uh, clean up so that it, the public, the most public visible uh, um, show of the homelessness in the CBD uh, without actually dealing. And I don't know if you've noticed, but these constantly say that, uh, oh, you know, these people are in the way effectively and they've got places to go. So whenever there's a flashpoint, like down in Flinders Street earlier in last oh, last week, when there was a flashpoint, when they wanted to get rid of the uh, group of people that were down there because they were putting up the um, the construction, for the scaffolding for the... Uh, Flinders re- Street Station. Yeah, refurbishment. Uh, that was a flashpoint. There's been other flashpoints. Bendigo Street was another flashpoint that came, brought the homelessness issue onto the political stage. Each time the uh, government's uh, representatives or local government representatives have said that they've supplied these people with lists of places to go and or been put in contact with some group of people. But continuously I'm getting reports from the homeless people that that means three days in a motel and then they're left to their own resources. So anyway, I went into the meeting and uh, Robert Doyle, this is what we're hearing from Robert Doyle, this is right at the end of all the different people who said that, in fact, there was an ex-counsellor who was there who works for a social welfare organisation that uh, he actually said that in the past when an idea like this was brought forward to the council before a big public event the council had actually voted against it. Uh, they voted for human rights. That's what he mm. said in his submission, which was sort of pretty fascinating, actually, I thought. But anyway, this is the tail end of the council, council proceedings. It's got uh, Doyle talking and then the vote, and uh, we'll take you outside after that. So, so, so my proposal is not to try to persuade you of the reasons why I think this may help, because it is simply a part of the suite of things that we want to do. It is not, as people have suggested tonight, anything near a solution. We get that. But what I've heard tonight are some very, very positive ideas from the people who submitted to us. I've heard that we need safe spaces and a drop-in centre. I agree. Let's work on doing that. I've heard that, that homeless people need something like lockers. I don't think we provide that yet, but let's look at doing that as well. 
I've heard from people to say, we don't agree with you. Make sure your definitions are right. Make sure they are clear. I agree. We have 28 days to do that, and, and I will welcome your input around that. You've said don't increase imprisonment, and I agree. And, and that is why using summary offences and arrest provisions, I don't think are the way to go. And that's why this doesn't go down that track, doesn't even authorise police. It continues to be a City of Melbourne response, and I hope that response will continue to be one of compassion and working with people who are sleeping rough to help people out of homelessness or help them where they are with the needs they have at, at the moment. I've heard you to say, I've heard you say that the, the process you're unsure of and, and that the voice of homeless people and rough sleepers needs to be heard during this debate. And I will work to make sure that that is the case in this 28-day period and those voices are actively sought and heard. I've heard you say, I've heard you say that the state and federal governments need to be lined up on the same page, and, and I agree. And I pledge to work to make that happen as far as I can. And the final part is, and I hope this doesn't invite derision because I mean it, there is no intention to push people out of the CBD. No intention to do that. And therefore, and therefore uh, I will look at all of those things that you have suggested, look at the way that we need to implement this. If we are wrong, I will concede we are wrong. But at the point... Well, opinion doesn't quite constitute data, but anyway, um, the, offer is, the offer is there. But at this point, at this point, I will support this motion. Thanks, Lord Mayor. Any other speakers to the motion? Councillor Watts. I will speak against this motion. What I need to make clear, what I need to make clear is that I think, I know, this council and the previous council were unanimous in understanding the need to address, to ameliorate the dire and demeaning situation that we, so many of our citizens find themselves in. The situation is untenable in a first world allegedly the most livable city in the world. Something has to be done, but this motion is not what needs to be done. It's utterly regrettable that a council with the wisdom to establish, actually I think it was the last council, the wisdom to establish a homelessness advisory group fail to consult with that group before devising a, a, an essentially uh, provocative and distressing motion that's before us now. It was just unnecessary. The people who've spoken today raised that point and it occurred to me. I spoke with officers about it. I, I'm not sure quite how our processes um, went awry. I believe had that happened, we would have listened to those with expertise, we would have listened to those with experience on the street. I personally don't have it, but that's why we have advisory groups. So I, it, as I said, it's regrettable that this is the, the cart is, is, is before the horse. Now, some would argue that there are 28 days in which people can submit. 
their arguments around this, this uh, motion. I've just discovered today, and I look to the officers to confirm this, that those who've made submissions will need to submit again. It seemed to me to be a reasonable situation that the submissions that were made already should be taken into account, but they are not going to be, I am advised. So all of you who've worked so diligently to put your thoughts together to argue your case will have, will have to do it again. Now, my preferred course of action would be a deferment. It's not going to happen. It was a, um, a futile idea of mine as I came to um, make decisions about this motion. The motion, by the looks of it, will proceed, but not with my vote. Thank you. Um. Just to close very quickly, the um, submission process is a statutory process which we can't actually alter. So um, you will have to submit your submissions again, but I think many of you had them on email, so it's a matter of hitting send and they'll be duly considered as they have been tonight. Um, the Homelessness Advisory Group, this is exactly where this um, recommendation will go to, and that's the start of this consultation process uh, over the next 28 days. I don't think that it will undercut the good work that is being done because that will continue. As the Lord Mayor highlighted, this is a council solution, not a police solution, as did Council Leppard, and that's a really important part of this, is we don't want this in the summary offences area. This will be, um, like everything, it's about how the outreach is implemented, and I think the service providers, um, council officers, are doing a fantastic job. But when Councillor Watts talks about, I don't think this is, well, I don't think we need to do this, the fact remains that 78% increase in rough sleepers in the city of Melbourne, something more assertive needs to be done to get people on pathways out of homelessness. So I'll put that to the vote. I now put that to the vote. All those in favour? Councillor Louis, myself, Lord Mayor, Councillor Rees, Councillor Sullivan, all those against? Councillor Watts, Councillor Oak, Councillor Leppert and Councillor Kaiafa, I declare that carried. I now call on Councillor Rees to assume the role of Chair of the meeting in relation to the planning portfolio. Uh, we now have uh, four reports from management for consideration under the planning portfolio. Um, well, they were pretty. Uh, they were pretty uh, certain about what they thought. Shame, Doyle. Shame. Yeah. Sometimes I wish that I was religious, not so I could believe in heaven, but so I could believe in hell. Yeah, that's exactly right. And isn't it outrageous? They actually do a homeless. Uh, homelessness committee uh, advisory board and they don't even bother to actually put this motion to them to be looked at and then have the audacity to pretend that they're following perfect procedures because what they wear suits <laughs> apparently they all cared they still look like crooks to me well you know four uh four out of five so doyle's got a, a, a um 
it, it's all politics uh, because obviously at that meeting, even though all these people presented these arguments for uh, against this motion, there was the deals had already been done before they actually had the committee, and that is the famous quote: "If you're going to go to one of these committee meetings, you must have all you must." All, it's like going to the doctor. You don't go to the doctor without actually knowing what, what's wrong with you, or you enter into a quicksand situation. <laughs> but it was very interesting to talk to people after mm. what, that vote because people were very angry. I'm from 3CR. Can you make any comment about what just happened there? Uh, look, we're really disappointed that the law is going out for public consultation in that form. Uh, the definition of camping that is being consulted on is very broad and we fear it will make simply lying down on the street in a, a swag or a, on a piece of cardboard um, the subject of a fine or an, a, a council officer being able to move you on. So we worry that will push people to the edges, make them feel even more marginalised than they are already and the only solution that will really work is, is providing housing for people. So... It's disappointing that a solution that won't work is being progressed with and a solution that will work uh, isn't being given any more attention today. Can I, can, I'm from, no, you don't want to talk to me? I had to walk out. I, was, I felt like I was in um, the approval for the Nazi party extermination. I just, yeah. I couldn't take it anymore. It was demonic. What will it mean for people who are sleeping rough here? What are they going to do? It's just going to cause more problems for everyone else. It's the whole homelessness thing has been artificially engineered. It's, it's what like 500 people, something like that, sleeping rough. That's about it. But to solve that, and they've had millions of dollars. Which, if you leverage millions of dollars on an interest, they'll like had a 30 to 60 million dollar budget to fix this problem, and it's still going. Yeah, where's the money gone? That, I have no idea, and I wish they'd explain it, because I haven't seen it. And I'm a ratepayer, I'm not sleeping rough. I want to know why they haven't fixed this problem. You know, the other thing is that when they say, uh, oh, we're not going to make it, Doyle says we're not going to make it a, a, a legal, you know, the police, although we've got, we had five police behind and several police at the side of the building, the bylaws officers actually have no real power. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know how the laws work. Or ha- no, I don't think any of this is lawful anyway. I don't think anyone has the right to be moving these people on. If they come, people that come to the city, they come here for help, not to be abused. And the problem isn't that hard to solve. It really isn't that hard to solve. It's just that people are benefiting. These these people that are supposed to be solving the problem are benefiting for the problem not being solved. Can I ask you what your impression was of that? You spoke to the, uh, you know, against this motion, and how, how are you feeling? Really upset about that. It's incredibly disappointing. We had a room full of people who have come here tonight, literally full, standing around the outsides of the room to say that this is not the right way to go, and still the fact that the council stood there and voted for the for the movement it's just so disappointing and we're going to be back here in 28 days we're going to resubmit and keep fighting fight good on you thank you can, uh, kelly can you give me your reactions to that yeah nice to meet you we'll be in touch 
Kelly, can you give me a reaction to that whole pantomime? Oh, just disgraceful. So it, it went through um, two Greens councillors, Cathy Oak, I think she's called, I'm not sure, and another gentleman voted against it, but it was I think it was a five to four outcome in favour of. Um, they said that now the public's got 28 days to make submissions. They're going to listen to the public. Um, they're going to listen to their homeless advisory group. But my point is, well, why didn't they get their input before they even made the proposal? As that councillor said, it's putting the cart before the horse. Um, what do you think of Doyle saying that uh, really he's being good because, you know, it's bylaws officers rather than uh, using the justice system? Um, so they're, they're calling it assertive outreach, so they're going to try and... Uh, yeah, and Doyle himself had earlier said, oh, you can think of it as a kind of a bit of an aggressive outreach. He's such an idiot with his language. He always puts his foot in his mouth. But um, I'm really concerned. I mean, people do need services, and I think some outreach is, is necessary because a lot of people don't know where to go. Then again, services aren't perfect, and the people that work in them aren't perfect. But what about the people that just want to be left alone? They don't want to be housed at the moment. Um, they have a right to public space and to share public space as well, and that's what concerns me about this uh, proposal. What do you think they're really on about? I think they're responding to the 600 and something complaints that they got last year about public amenity. Um, all the pressure from the Herald Sun, the acting Chief Commissioner of Police, Graham Ashton, maybe it's all that pressure they want to see be seen to be doing something to clean up the amenity, in quotes, of um, the city streets. Um, Do you think it's because the uh, homeless people have decided to make themselves public rather than hide away in shame? Absolutely. I've been speaking to a few people and I said, you know, in the past, people experiencing homelessness... The, the image was you used to sleep down alleyways, in bushes, in parks, away from the public. But with Flinders Street, those people were really out there. And I said, what do you put that down to? And he said, well, it's safe here for a starters. There's lots of CCTV. Um, we're under lights. And he goes, it's also to show the public that this is a really big issue. And if we hide, they're not going to know about it. So it's a bit of a political act even if people don't necessarily see it as such, but it is, it is definitely a political act. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell me your reaction to that? Oh, bloody hell, I don't know, I don't know what to think, really. Um, very disappointed. Um, we've got 28 days, I think. I don't know what we're going to do in the next 28 days to get this organised and sorted out. Um, my personal opinion, if they really want the truth and they want to see what's really going on down here, each one of those buggers should get out here each day and find a different person each day over those 28 days and still in a bloody rough, talk to them. Um, do, do you think that uh, they're really saying the people who are homeless and are on the street aren't constituents? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much, you know. Um, so I'm a, bit, I'm a bit fired up at the moment, I'm a bit, bit upset, so I'm probably not being super articulate, but um, it's, just, it's so aggravating to sit in that space with those people, uh, with the power they wield. Um, looking down their noses, scoffing, you know, at times. Um, I, I just don't know at the moment. Look, over the next 28 days, I think we really need to get out here. I think the community actually needs to get out here more. That's, that's who these homeless people are relying on, is the community. The good-hearted the good people that are, of this beautiful city that are going past every day and looking after us, they're the ones that are taking care of us. No one else is. You know, they talk about support services, mental health issues, all this kind of stuff. 
they have no idea just how big the issue is. It's massive, it's massive. And in their little, you know, lunch rooms when they're drinking their Chardonnay and eating their bloody Scotch fillets for lunch, you know, they're just so separated and distant from the, what's really going on out here. And it's just bloody aggravating. So I'm not happy, but over the next 28 days, I'm going to do what I can uh, with my mates, uh, my friends in the community, and um, see what we can do and come back. This business about uh, uh, homelessness coming really publicly onto the streets, what's that about, you reckon? You know what I reckon, my honest opinion, this has all come to a head because some people that have been living rough and, and they're allowed to do it because it's not illegal, <coughs> have been out in the open uh, smoking what the general public and the media perceive to be drugs out in the street through bongs and pipes and things like that. Ever since that started coming into, into, the, into play, that's when they've really started cracking down, really coming down hard. Um, what they need to look at in regards to that is, um, first of all, no one's breaking the law. What's really going on is that people are finding unattractive to look at while they're walking past on their lunch breaks, on their way to work, on their way home to their lovely families and homes. Um, it looks ugly to them, you know. Um, fuck them. I don't give a shit what they think. You know, who cares what they think? How about what we think and why we're doing this stuff and why we're out here and why we, we have rights, you know. We're not doing anything wrong. Leave us the fuck alone, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you can have a talk. What do you, what do you think yeah, about all these? PCR, yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, Robbie Forbes' um, cousin. Oh, yeah, that's right. And Vivian, yes. they're, they're my blood, they're my people. Yeah, cool. And um, there's a few other quarries on the street here. And then, um, I'm um, originally from um, Bendigo Street, which you see a lot of a lot of the guys here from Bendigo Street. I was living in 13 Bendigo Street here in Collingwood. And I think it's very disgusting. Everybody else got a house, so a lot of them got a house. I haven't got a house, and I'm Aboriginal, and all this is on, on my land, and it's crown, crown land, as I, like, I think it is on fucking crown land, because it's government owned, and all the land's there, it's crown land, and I, I think all us, I was in 13 Bendigo Street, and, um, you didn't get a house. I'd never got a house out of this. And I'm Were you on one the of the people that the uh, police commissioner promised a house to? Exactly, exactly, exactly. I'm Frankie Hayes. They promised us this and promised us that. Oh, look, I'm sick of this. They promised white fellows this and that. And they promised us black fellows this and that. And what they promised is, right up, uh, well, I don't know where the promise has gone. But, you know... We're still on the street here today. All, you know, all my white friends here, and I'm black man, and and they've got all the buildings on it, my land. They haven't paid the rent. You know, fuck, what's going on? It's all bullshit, mate. All <laughs> Thanks bullshit. for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. much. Do an interview with me. What did you think about all that? All that, that was just a bunch of bullshit. Look. I was one of the people that accepted a place, yeah? Yeah. Like, I'll even show you this. Because you were down by uh, industry. industry. Yeah. Right. These people here, this is from a person at uh, Launch Housing. Yeah. yeah. They put us up for three weeks. This has been going on for three weeks now. Right. So she goes, uh, hi, Greg, I'm sorry. I have I've been uh, uh, meetings this morning. Uh, Daniel's number is... He is off sick uh, today, Sig, but should be uh, back, back tomorrow. in tomorrow. Cheers. This has been going on for three weeks. 
three fucking weeks since um, the Australian Open first first started. We were open house. I was one of the ones that accepted. I'm still on the fucking street. Sorry, I'm still on the street. Yeah. I shouldn't swear. Right? So they no, they keep saying, oh, you know, it's all about we really care and we're going to yeah, yeah, prompt yeah. it. But they don't. They put us up. For, the Salvation Army put us up for three nights. That was it. And then that was the, that was the the last um, the last. Uh, Little protest that we had down there when they moved us all on and put the fucking the work the work things up. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I think I think that's a bit of a lie. Well, they all lie. Yeah, it's lie. They all lie. They all lie just to make make what's name. Then we we're the ones that look bad when um when uh, the public sees us and the paper comes to us and says that uh, you know wah 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 they walk past us like you piece of shit blah 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 you dogs blah blah blah. Even the coppers come up and intimidate us. One of them come up. They oh god, it was pepper sprayed. Oh, no. About a week ago, right? One copper, one PSO, I should say. Oh, was it even a copper? It was a PSO. He comes up, calls me a dog. Triggers me straight away. I was like, well, who the fuck are you? Blah, blah, blah. Next minute, I'm getting pepper sprayed, and that was it. <gasps> These guys were all around, too. And that was it. So, and my mate, he was trying to hold me back because I, I, I wanted to smash this guy. He called me a dog. Where I come from, you get caught a dog, you get bashed every time when you walk down the street. You know what I'm saying? You cannot walk down the street if you have this name. It's not good. No, it's not good. Thanks for talking to me. And good luck. Thank you. Your love is lifting me higher than I've ever been lifted before. Radical Radio. Call 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au and we'll be at your side forevermore. Now, of course, that phone number, 9419 for that subscription that we really want you to renew or do a new one, uh, office hours, please. Office hours, nine, <laughs> nine to five. We're not going to take it, but office hours. It would be great if you rang and uh, joined up and be part of the uh, the solution rather than the problem. And if you want to help with the homeless persons rise against the uh, bylaws uh, put forward by uh, Mayor Doyle, and I loved it. Did you notice? Every time Doyle was talking, it was all about Doyle. I will have a look. I will decide. Blah, 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 blah. The last time I looked, he was actually an elected officer. Isn't that right, Kip? I didn't vote for him. <laughs> Who voted for him? <laughs> All those whackers in the middle of the CBD, that, that's, they're the ones who <laughs> voted for him. But as my sister lives in the city and I said, oh, no, he'll get back in because uh, the, he's the only one that they can recognise. It's the only name they know. And then she said to me this ridiculous thing. She said to me, oh, he likes to be mayor so much. You might as well let him be. You know, <laughs> it's sort of like boys Don't and take toys. his toys away from him. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Yeah, except his toys are like real human beings. Yeah, yeah. So uh, connect up. If you're on, uh, go to uh, the Facebook uh, 
at uh, the Homelessness Persons Union and uh, and and help out. Uh, the there will be more communications about messages about how to help. If you're not uh, computer connected, then uh, you can perhaps uh, call up Ruminations on Thursday and have a chat with the uh, homelessness uh, union people then and uh, you can be part of the solution. But today, now, right now we're going to move on uh, because we can. We're going to talk to Luke Sinclair. G'day Luke, how are you? Yeah, good. Yes, you've got this fantastic thing. You do this every year, don't you? The Festival of Photocopier Zine Fair. Yeah, this is the 10th year of the Zine Fair. They can't get rid of you. the 10th time we've done it. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody thinks that the photocopier is dead, but uh, you beg to differ. Yeah, it's interesting. So we've run it for 10 years, the zine fair. And so the first one we ran, had we had 50 stalls outside sticky. Wow. And then for the next five years after that, it grew by 15 stalls every year. Oh, my goodness. R- really, really constant. Then two years ago, it grew by 80 stalls. Oh, my goodness. And then this year, we've got an extra 55 on top of that. So, essentially, it's doubled in size in two years. Oh, that's amazing. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. yeah, it, it, yeah. It, I, and I thought, I thought two years ago, it was at capacity, that there was no way we could just get the... There is people travel from interstate to come. That does happen. But it's just growing and growing and growing. Now, one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk about in relation to this, because I actually, as I said earlier, I had a love affair with photocopiers and creating stuff, and I used to run desktop publishing arrangements, went right at the cusp in yeah, the 80s, yeah. and so and earlier before that, you know, like with LetraSit and all the rest of it, and just the fantastic, uh, expressive, data-ist uh, potential of uh, the, uh, the text as well as the image. That's what you're about, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and so much variety as well. Like, So there's 240 stalls in the town hall on Sunday. That's tomorrow, 12 to 5. Oh, nice, nice. See, one. I know. <laughs> no, I'm really keen. Yeah, yeah. But you look at all of them stalls, you know, there's a different approach with pretty much each one. So, you know, there's people using collage, there's people using photocopiers, there's people using risograph. You know, there's kind of higher What's end. What's Rizograph? Oh, so Rizograph is hot at the moment. Riz- people love Riz- So Rizograph is an older printmaking technique. It's a cross between photocopying and screen printing. Oh. So the machine itself looks a lot like a photocopier, but you cut the machine cuts a stencil and then you do individual layers of color. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so wow. it's beautiful, beautiful. But so people like Alice Kazam... And Ashley Ronin are doing great work in Melbourne using Risograph. They've got their own machines. There's another another machine at Squishface, and they kind of can really layer colours on it. So there's going to be quite a few Risograph stalls at the fair tomorrow, and people have just really embraced it. We've noticed kind of over the last few years, people are very excited about Risograph. I'm not surprised. <laughs> can you sort of explain a bit about seeing culture? Because I remember when I was like 19 years old studying it at university. Like yesterday. Um, <laughs> Not yesterday. <laughs> um, but uh, it, has there been a bit of a revival or has it always been a movement? Or? Um, it, look, it, it's interesting because I've worked at Sticky since we opened. So we opened 16 years ago and we opened with 15 titles on our shelf the day we opened. And in those 15 years, we've stocked just short of 15,000 individual titles. And it, it's kind of, it, it's been constant, but more during the last few years, it's kind of increased quite a lot. So the, the way I think of it, there's many histories around when you look at zines. When I think of Sticky and what we stock there, I just 
kind of date it back to punk rock in 1976. Yeah. But Actually, yeah, that's right. That That's my background. But then you speak to other people. It goes of, earlier than oh, that. Oh, yeah, like sci-fi people yeah. will talk about science fiction zines in the 60s. Oh, it actually starts with the 30s. At least. Oh, yeah, and then you go back further than that. Like I read the book Vanity Fair a couple of years ago, and in it there's a character, and he makes what he calls a pamphlet, and it's about hops. It's this really, really oh, wow. boring, boring pamphlet he makes, and he forces it on people. He's this really <laughs> boring character, and wherever he goes, he whips out his pamphlet and insists on reading it to people. It does. sounds like a hipster, though. <laughs> read about hops. You must read about it. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> that, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's way back. So you go back to the beats. Well, it must also have something to do with this. I read in this, oh, the, the books I read, but there was this woman who uh, treatises, you know, religious... Uh, um, like that, uh, there's a there's a sticker out in 3CR's uh, uh, tea room where it says, "Beware of the God," and this is what this woman would do. They'd and it was obviously an army of people who would had a treatise for every occasion. So if the cabbie was rude to her, the in the the horse drawn cab man was rude to her, she she would throw a treatise in there. So wow. you know how to save yourself from the uh, the Satan of uh, the cab. You know, like they had things like that. It was really weird. Look, it's really interesting how it moves. It's kind of slow, the progression, but it does alter over the years. So one of the things we've got in the festival this year is a tour of the State Library of Victoria's zine collection. And oh, they have, fantastic. It, it's just enormous, and it's all cli- and it's in climate-controlled cabinets that are on tram tracks. And I'm it, sure there's people I know in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there is. That's the thing. And, and it's it's... Right from through the years, and then there's some really large collections that have been given, but it's not stored in alphabetical order. It's stored in the order it was donated to the library. Oh, how weird. So you can go back and look at, oh, I want to look at August 1999, what was there, and you just take mm. the box out and you look at it, and the different printmaking techniques, and because digital technology has changed so much, they look really different, the zines, yeah, yeah, from yeah. what we have now. So at the festival a couple of years ago, we had the Melbourne poet Pi O come and speak. Yeah, Pi who's a just yeah, a yeah. scholar of independent publishing. Right. And he was talking about... Zing. He was part of that group of people who used to stand on street corners and actually deliver poetry. Yep. And that he, was so hmm. exciting. Oh, it was, it was really exciting. So when when are you talking about then? When 80s. You're, yeah, well, he he has kept street work. Yeah, street right, work, yeah. And he has this huge collection of it. And they're fantastic. Oh, it's just amazing. But so, he, yeah. he brought into his talk, he brought in these zines which were made just on the cusp of when photocopiers were introduced. That's right. That's and right. these were made, you know, you, so you had the old... Hey, I'll tell you something really fantastic. <laughs> My grandfather was the first person to import a photocopier into Australia. Wow. Yeah, he used to work at the Holden factory down in, uh, I think it was in uh, Geelong. Yeah, yeah. And he, and, uh, he <laughs> imported the first photocopier into Australia. Mm, was there a Holden factory in Geelong as well? Well, whatever that Ford, is. the Ford one. Oh, was it Ford? Yeah. Whatever. I'm not interested in the car, so I'm only interested in the photocopier. <laughs> In his early days, it was it was X-rays, photo uh, photos and X-rays. He was into like early, you know. Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. Like really early. When I he hope was he didn't X-ray too many things <laughs> or people. To, no, but but then he, in his uh, retirement years, he worked when he was much older. He worked at this factory and he worked in the office and stuff. And he obviously in. He was the one who imported the photocopier. Oh, photocopier. Well, in his talk, Pio, when he talked about when the first photocopiers came to Melbourne, he was talking about they would set aside a whole room yeah, for the photocopier right. and it would sit in the middle yeah. and a white coat... Coat te- gentleman. Yeah, would, would... Always a gentleman. Would be a the person. Yeah, and you would take the photocopy to them in their white jacket 
and they would do the photocopying for you. Yeah. Because before that, you had, you know, spirit duplicators. Yeah, that's right. And he had all these zines which were on the cusp of photocopying and spirit duplicators. That's and so what you so what they ended up doing, because the photocopy was a novelty, they'd use that for the cover. Yeah. And then they'd have these beautiful spirit oh, duplicated pages. Right. But then after really small window, six months, they realized, no, the photocopy is just kind of really, really kind of practical. And we should have the colored copies on the spirit Inside. duplicated stuff for the cover yeah so that but there was this window when the photocopy was just glorious and new and they photocopied the covers rather than having the color copy which tells you about the the cultural interface uh bit you know of technology and people because and this is one of the things that's so fantastic because like you said in that period where desktop publishing uh, made its uh, mark uh this was even before widgy dig when you got what you saw you know like when you had four fonts or something like that <laughs> right and PageMaker was the beginning all of the people made their stuff on PageMaker, and you could see almost the tension the tension within the layout of not being able to break out mm. into something mm. that they want to do because you see the difference between being able to cut things up and put them down in whatever way you want uh, and it's beginning again, isn't it? People are cutting things up and putting things as they want. Oh, they lo- they love it. Like my my, it's, it's an explosion of freedom. My my day job is as a high school teacher, and I've got a few typewriters in my classroom. And you'll see the New Year Sevens come in, and they'll <gasps> look at this thing, and they'll be like, "What is this strange counting machine here? What what does this do?" And you're like, "Oh, it's a it's a typewriter." And so they'll say, "Okay, let's put some paper in," and they just don't know what that's all about so you show them how to put the paper in and then show them how hard you had to hit the keys and then they make a mistake and they're like oh how do you get rid of that and it's like no no you don't that's case. <laughs> that's right and and actually that's the whole well you see where uh, that's the fantastic thing about it because then they created all those uh companies were made made their for- people made their fortune out of making those little round objects that turned and did the white thing over <laughs> yeah, the top yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know nothing about this but it's fantastic absolutely fantastic I, I, my grandma was a very good typist Wow. And I was like, you can touch type on the computer. And she's like, I learned on a typewriter, Kim. Yes. That's <laughs> I was born in the 30s. <laughs> but it's good stuff. It's good stuff because it's art. As I said, it's an interface between culture and technology. So if you, if you come to the Zine Fair on Sunday, the range is what really interests me when you walk around. and Because when I work at Sticky, someone will come in and they'll say... And that's say, called Sticky Institute? Yep, Sticky Institute. So Underground. Underground. Shop 10, Campbell Arcade. Oh, is it Campbell Arcade? Why? It gets called both. The official the title is well, Campbell Arcade. You enter it at the DeGraves Street yeah, steps. But you people and bring it, in and the... You've, and you've got to admit, DeGraves is a much better looking word than Campbell. <laughs> but when... So when Sticky opened there, which was in 2001, that was the office space of Platform who moved in in 1990. Oh, yeah. And when they moved in in 1990, DeGraves Street was just still all bins. Yeah. Like there was nothing there at all. And they opened that space as an art space mm. down there. And then you go down there today and it's a very, yeah, it's a very, place. very, very mm. different world. Still completely. a few bins. <laughs> you need a few. <laughs> the recycle centre's around the corner. Yeah, oh, it's right. good. It's good. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, I, I'm really pleased that you came in and told us about this because uh, <laughs> I just find it really exciting. I'm, it, 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 so there's a whole lot of young people I mean, huge lots of people who are interested in doing this. Well, it, it, when you say huge, it is. Like, we have 240 stalls, which I've, I've been going to zine fairs for longer than I 
uh, to admit here. And our, the, our 240, yeah, you're not allowed to be old. 240 is massive. It's like, you know, when we started with our 50 store one, we thought this is a good, this is really good. Yeah, well, it's a nice you know, it's number. It's a great size. It's, so that used to be in the corridor outside Sticky. So we did it there for five years and it was just, it just expanded. We couldn't, we couldn't have it there anymore. So it what, moved what to town hall. What is it that causes people to uh, just be in love with Because it, it is a love affair. And I think just the tactile nature of them. You can grab it, you can hold it, and so when we when we opened in two thousand and one, there was this real sense that zines were going to be killed by the internet. That's that, right. That they weren't going to exist in two years. And my my background's all analog. I don't do digital work at all. Mm. And so I was like, oh, everyone's saying zines are going to be dead in two years. I'm going to be dead in two years. He says. Is this the case? I don't know. There's lots of zines at the minute. Let's open this shop and see where it goes from there. But what happened was, as the years progressed, rather than it kill the zines it meant that people could just connect and talk about mm. the zines. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's a, uh, there's a famous, one of the, uh, uh, what is it, communication theorists, uh, McLuhan, mm-hmm. yeah, he talks about once you, when you move from one uh, method of expression, so say oral history, to the written, to now to, uh, to, uh, digital uh, methodologies, that something always is lost. Mm. Uh, but also that um, people begin to uh, try and reassess the world that they're in by bringing back history, looking backwards. Yep. They look backwards. because, And in that, I suppose, steampunk is like this, as well as uh, also this zines mm. that that people aren't uh, prepared to let it go i think it's it's like he talks about how old media becomes the content of new media and then eventually it becomes art and i think there's this whole materiality that people are kind of feel lost in the internet and i think it's like you know one of the reasons that records have become so popular but also people have started to realize like in terms of digital preservation, is that digital is terrible for preserving things. So they actually keep things in analogue form. Mm. You know, the internet is good for disseminating things and lots of other things, but actually they start to, they keep records in analogue form because they don't last because digital environments um, erode after about a year, even the cloud. Well, you know, that's really interesting. That's a perfectly, uh, a perfect point. And you know, the thing that's really fascinating, the uh, pencil, uh, graphite, Last pen doesn't. <laughs> yeah. You're blowing my mind. Here. This, is, this is incredible. <laughs> These are the things that I, I think about all the time. There are books that have survived. I think it's like the island's version of the Doomsday books. And they were made, you know, covers were of human skin. And there was this oh big... Oh, my God. That's so awful. They were badly burnt. So, like, only 30% of them are readable. But they survived for hundreds of years, whereas digital wouldn't but they actually made 70% of it readable by taking photos of the whole thing and then flattening it digitally to read it. Oh, yeah. So I think that's a good example of what digital does well and what analogue does well. Yeah. I think that, that's what you got to look at with a zine as well. Like I think the worst zines we've ever stocked at Sticky are work which belonged in the digital realm, which they've tried to plonk into the analogue yeah. realm. And it, it just, it just doesn't work. Yeah, it's like an opera. You know, It's like saying, well, if that's an opera if I just take the Herald Sun and read it in an opera voice. It's going, to, it's going to be a good opera. It's like, no, one's a newspaper, one's an opera, and they're very, very different things. So with kind of digital work and analogue work, if you're working with analogue work, if you're working with zines, you can use exotic papers, you know, you can stick garbage to it, you can 
you know, drive your car over it or whatever you want. And that's going to be kind of interesting. But you can't just dump from one to the next. It just doesn't work like that. Well, if you want to go and see the Zine Fair, when is it, Luke? So the Zine Fair is tomorrow, Sunday, in the Melbourne Town Hall, 12 till 5, 240 stalls. It's free to get in. And then there's lots of events at Sticky today. So the first event today is there's a Zine Distro launch at 9 o'clock, so in 40 minutes, with a pancake feast at Sticky Institute. So new Zine Distro free... Our free zine distro called Small Zine Volcano is launching with a pancake feast. Then there is three launches by the Girl Freeders from 12 till 2. A tour of the State Library of Victoria Zine Collection at 2 o'clock. There is zine launches at Sticky at 4. Still nomads are presenting young black folk creating. So there's going to be reading, spoken word, conversation. Then the stalls at Girlhood tonight. So there's music, spoken word, visual art, Little Lamb and the Rosemary's. Beloved Elk, the Girl Frieda's. Turn my page. Next thing is tomorrow. The Zine Fair, 12 till 5. There's an exhibition at, in the Condell Room at the Melbourne Town Hall during the Zine Fair of the Zine U. Issue 800 has been launched, but it's 240 stalls in the main room of the Melbourne Town Hall tomorrow. Oh, that's fantastic. And if you're connected to the internet, this is one of the things the internet does really well. Look up the Sticky Institute. Yep, just go to the Sticky Institute website and the full program is all there with all the times and everything on it. Thanks very much. Thank you. A weak solidarity, Breggy team listener, when there were loud gasps in the big top during a stunning performance by True Blue Aussie Circus, Sir Cosse, as tightrope artiste extraordinaire and minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash Up the Workers was left hanging upside down, clinging to the tightrope by a single toenail a single beautifully pedicured toenail while balancing a huge rod with the stars and stripes flapping from one end and the red star of China from the other. The rod oscillating one way and then the other, each sway eliciting eliciting gasps as Julie, tightrope artiste extraordinaire, herself swayed this way and that, all the while attempting to retain the hold of that precarious pedicure. Don't worry, she attempted to assure the audience. I've got it under complete, oops, control. Hang on, ringmaster Malcolm Tunner Bull himself gasped as the rod tottered dangerously. We seem to have lost the safety net. On Malcolm, following our report last week that he had solved on behalf of the whole world the threat of climate change, proffering coal as the solution to coal, fossils as the solution to fossils wiping out the planet, sadly this week he couldn't prevent one fossil from attempting to wipe out Malcolm himself, promoting the public funding of coal expansion obviously not conservative enough for Corey St. Bernardi. Being a St. Bernardi, as we've mentioned a number of times, explaining his fear, his terrified belief that same-sex marriage will lead axiomatically to bestiality, and someone suggested it could be even worse. He could be Corgi St. Bernardi. Anyway, on Corey's sad defection, and isn't it a disgrace that the government has swung so violently to the left that he was forced to take this admirably principled stand on behalf of all decent white true blue Aussie racist, sexist, homophobic xenophobes? The I miss that completely award of the week to, well, to me. First time I've picked up one of these cherry sweet that was awards. 
after Hayseed and Sheepshit Party MP George Christian, man and a woman family son, said Corey's defection was down to Malcolm because Malcolm had, quote, abandoned conservative causes. Hence my award, abandoned conservative causes. I miss that completely. Corey has achieved his ambition to be all things to all men. Knowing, as Corey does, woman and her body must be subject to man. All things too, by forming his very own political party. I am the president, he told us, and he inflated his chest. I am the secretary and, he looked very satisfied, I am the treasurer and I am the committee and I am the executive and I am proud to say I am also the entire rank and file. For those interested, the next meeting will be in Corey's bed at 1am Tuesday, where presumably you can join him, but, but don't bring your pet sheep. Needing a meaningful policy issue to divert from Corey, Malcolm found Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten, ambition. The key policy in the interest of all true blue Aussies, that little Billy is a blowing hard, sycophant hypocrite saying whatever suits his purpose. Who'd have thought that of a politician? There was never a union leader that tucked his knees under more billionaire tables, which I thought may have gone a bit far. They, they'd never bit. Wonder if he's put his knees under Malcolm's table. After Malcolm's political analysis of Little Billy, Little Billy deflected the embarrassment by saying all he cared about was the downtrodden leading a journey to ask whether the Socialist Party's commitment to the downtrodden was reflected by the Socialists forcing single mums and their kids into poverty through caring then-minister, still spokesperson for destitute single parents, Jenny Makenham Destitute. That, Little Billy explained, direct quote, that was a mistake. One could feel the size of relief in all those destitute households whose income was slashed. Thank goodness, they chorused. It was all a mistake. Wonder if the destitution spreads to Raheen, where little Billy socialises with his close mates, the Their Prats. Although we can be sure Jeannie must wish a few single mums, mums thanks to her ex, the appropriately named Dick, could experience destitution. And on destitution, congratulations to that epitome of pumped-up humility, Lord Mayor Robert Dill, and those councillors who voted to criminalise being homeless, making it illegal to go to sleep if you haven't got, can't afford, a roof over your head. But, and here's where their humanity oozes compassion, they will consider providing lockers for the homeless to store their goods, which is just as well, because they also voted to take all their belongings, of which there's not much all off them, if their belongings like them haven't got a roof over. But this could be a boon to very tiny homeless people who just may be able to squeeze into the locker. So shame on those who suggest they're doing nothing to address the causes of homelessness. Why, Robert Dill and the Starvation Army never stop telling us how much they care. But sadly, the homeless still have to be swept off the streets because decent society shouldn't be confronted with the sight of these bludgers. That's taking the how much they care too far. These dregs who think the streets are public property. Many of whom, who along with the long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden worker and an iron black armband brigade, claim shouldn't exist in a decent society. 
for goodness sake, do they want to deprive the decent people of the charities they so enthusiastically support? Doing wonders for the French champagne industry and gourmet food purveyors in the process. Win-win. OK, so the homeless may have fallen through the champagne and gourmet cracks, but that's no excuse for depriving the decent, respectable, charming people of their chance to give something back and network at the same time, bringing us back to the decent people who know how to make this a decent society, such as little Billy's close, close ideological friends, the their prats, proving we're all equal, the their prats and the homeless bludgers, all equal. For Anthony their prats, who runs his inherited late and sadly lamented daddy's business from the US, the UN of the US of the world these days, and always turns near the top, or turns up near the top of the True Blue Aussie annual filthiest rich of the filthy rich list, who had the pleasure of new US of vice big supremo Mike Dollars and Pence opening a new US of plant for good old Anthony just last year. And BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluters, big supremo Jack Nastia and his two IC had a private meeting with US of big supremo Donald Trample the Poor in Trample the Poor Tower the other day to discuss a few little common concerns, showing just how all decent people, indeed all people, even those homeless bludgers, have equal access to those who can help them make them a little filthier richer. Like the like True Blue Aussie post Big Supremo Ahmed Far, who's the richest, whose five mil plus package is justified by his cost saving measures like charging lots more for a reduced service and more particularly paying nineteen dollars an hour to workers who should have been paid thirty two dollars. Five point three mil is probably a touch more than nineteen dollars an hour, I would have thought. Data entry workers, one underpaid four thousand three hundred in just four weeks, real figure, but of course they were employed through a recruitment firm for a contractor for Ahmed, and somewhere in there the correct rate must have just got lost, inadvertent naturally, just as naturally as we never hear of workers being inadvertently overpaid by the usual suspects. We can now add True Blue Aussie Post to the list. So all those savings put his obscene, sorry, sorry, where'd that come from? Uh, sorry, reasonable little salary into perspective and just as naturally they moved to address the massive worker exploitation problem once they realised it, they said. Now, uh, realise? Well, once we realise the proverbial might be about to hit the fan, the small inadvertent problem to become public. In their in the they're trained to kill the other not themselves department this inquiry into the huge numbers of train killer suicides we don't train them to kill themselves we train them to enjoy killing others whom we nominate the other a psych described the measures that had been taken i don't know if there's anything else we could have done she said and i thought of course there is the week that was solves the problem yet again. They could just get rid of the whole train killer lot altogether and save trillions for non-killing purposes in the process. Why, they wouldn't even have to slash pensions and welfare and impose even harsher penalties on the young unemployed whose unemployment must logically, given the government has to punish them, be their own fault. Nothing to do with the greatest little economic order of them all.
Finally, a bit of paid advertising. After all, this segment doesn't come cheap. We have to meet the bills. White House Enterprises presents the exciting Ivanka Trample the Poor Fashion Week with grand daily catwalk displays in the Oval Office to counter terrible attacks on poor Ivanka on the most loved fashion label in the world, believe me. And next week, the big one, White House Enterprises, in association with West Bank Property Development Corporation, presents the Not Another Yahoo Land Grab, prime land, yours for the taking, a direct descendant of the 3,000-year-old Yahweh Land Development Corporation. Conditions apply. Uh, which are? Uh, Palestinians and other non-people Arabs need not apply. But, but... Don't they own it? Not according to the law. These people have no respect for this week's law. Bad non-people. Bad dudes. Good morning. Melbourne says no to Netanyahu. This month, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will visit Australia as a guest of the Turnbull government. Netanyahu is an outspoken racist who has devoted his political career to the oppression of Palestinians and the creation of an apartheid regime throughout occupied Palestine. Join, Join us. us at the State Library on Sunday the 19th of February at 2pm as Melbourne, Melbourne says no to Netanyahu. Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and on the line we've got Dr Noah Pasil. How are you, Noah? I'm very well, thanks, Annie. How are you? Good. It's so nice to hear your voice again. Yeah, good morning. It's been a while. Oh, good morning, Kim. How are you? Good, thank you. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> Trump. Well, who would like to begin? Yeah, oh, well. Well, uh, I started off um, with, I sent you off an article about that was put together by uh, George Mobiot, who's a... Uh, a journalist and uh, called Dark Arts, and he gave a very interesting uh, analysis of how the American Trump regime and the Theresa May regime in Britain actually dovetail with each other, and that Brexit uh, was actually a perfect sort of uh, choreographed uh, dance to try and get Britain to go into the hands of America again, re-establish itself there and uh, try to undermine the EU. What was your view on that? Oh, I think it's an interesting take. I think it sounds a bit too... It read a bit too conspiratorial for me. I don't. I think the forces at work here are a bit more um, sort of uh, divergent and... Um, chaotic than than it was represented. I don't disagree that the outcome may lead to a new U.S. Anglo sort of rapprochement on global on a new global order. Don't, I think the conclusion is sound. I think the way that they got there, he got there, might have been a little bit too. Um, what's the word? Um, uh, sort of deterministic. Yeah, I think that refined the, by hindsight. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think what has happened. I mean, like many commentators have said, I'm certainly just sort of here um, emphasising what is sort of becoming uh, amongst a certain number of um, commentators a pretty well refined critique of the failure of global capitalism. <clears throat> excuse me, of, of neoliberal capitalism the alienation, 
the sense that uh, there is a um, there, there's a new sort of um, alliance between a certain elements of the a certain uh, faction of the capitalist ruling elite and the dispossessed that um, is reshaping the and and reinvigorating global neoliberalism, giving it a new sort of ideological um, validation at a time when the validation that had propelled it through the 90s and, and, and 2000s had been lost with the GFC and, and I mean, you know, up until 2007 when the GFC hit, the narrative around the world was global capitalism is growing, the trickle-down is working, um, you know, the, there's hope and opportunity for everyone. The GFC hit and what became evidently clear to just about everyone around the world starting, I think, really with the, um, with the Occupy movements and then with the Arab Spring, um, was that that narrative was no longer um, um, uh, sort of no longer had any weight with people. They had lost any uh, sense that that narrative about global capitalism uh, um, meant anything to them. So we get this period of up a, a sort of resurgent anti-capitalist um, movements around the world, and then global capitalism remakes itself, I think, forging this new alliance between the very people who should be the most critical of the global neoliberal order and the ruling elite who are benefiting from it. I think as well what was interesting was that I think that actually what, in terms of the US alliance with the UK, I thought that one of yes. the things that uh, that Britain could do for the US was actually be part of the EU because that meant that they were privy to all these financial meetings about money markets and so on and that they could in some way influence the European money markets, which was kind of useful for the American yes. ruling class, or at least that's one aspect that was useful. And I think it's problematic for the UK now that they can't play that role. Yes, and I, I agree. I think that's a very um, sort of perceptive analysis of the, 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 the loss that accrues from the UK leaving um, the EU. The other thing we have to, I, I think the, the other thing that's, that's not uh, mentioned in Monbiot's article is that the EU, it, most of the key EU states seem to be moving back to the social democratic model, um, at least trying to re reinvigorate it. Germany, France, I mean, France is polarised at the moment, um, but there is a sense possibly that, um, you know, the the sort of alliance of progressives across the country could stand up to Le Pen and to the right at the presidential elections later in the year. Um, we saw in Austria, uh, you know, an unexpected victory of social democracy. Um, Scandinavia, there's a, you know, despite the forces that are trying to pull it further away from social democracy, there's a tenacity, tenacity they're holding on to it. Um, even countries in the global, in the sort of um, 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 south in the Mediterranean, there's still there's still that um, attachment to the social democratic systems that they forged in the 
as part of the EU building process. The UK hasn't has abandoned that abandoned that with Thatcherism, and there's no going back. And I think that's part of the the narrative as well for understanding why the UK has has so quickly left the EU. That that the elites in the UK, um, the majority of the elites in the UK want to see the UK pull further away from that social democratic order. Um, oh, yeah. And that's something that's happening in the US as well. We're seeing the breakdown of that even further. We saw it under Bush. Obama tried to stabilise it to some extent, but really the forces that are uh, in, I would say, dominant in the US now want to see the destruction of any remnant of uh, the what we might call social democracy. And we've seen that with the repealing the repeal of the health care, um, the very minor adjustment to health care that um, Obama um, implemented against huge opposition. You know, for, uh, many of the, the opponents were the very people who should have supported it. You know, it's, this is the, it's bizarre, isn't it? This is, the, this is the real dilemma, I think, for a lot of scholars working, you know, and it goes back, to the 18th, one of you know one of the most decisive moments in Marxian um, uh, sort of whatever you want to call it, ouvre, is the notion of ideology and how do we understand people's um, um, willingness to accept their own submission or their own repression? And I, you know, the, I think the most compelling debates in Marxist thought from then on have not really been about the economy about the capitalist system, but why people are willing to accept their uh, subordination in that system. You know, whether we talk about Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci's mm-hmm. work, whether we talk about the Frankfurt School, whether we talk about Altazare, you know, there's this thread right through. And today, some of the most interesting commentary is, a, is asking a question of why people in the UK or in the US voted against their economic and their own social, um, cultural um, um, interests. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, yeah. a question here in Australia with Hansenism as well. Sorry, Kim. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, I tell everybody that you're, they're Hi. listening to Solidarity Breakfast and uh, it's uh, 3CR and we're talking to Dr Noah Purcell. Um I was actually going to say that uh, some of the commentary that have come out from different people who uh, have did vote for Trump, for example, mm. was that they were tired of giving their concerns to the more rational side of, or apparently more rational side of politics, mm. uh, wanting something to change because nobody, they're rocking the boat. Not that they, but but this is what happened leading up to Hitler taking over Germany, you know, you know, you know. I think that the Brexit and the Trump phenomenon are quite different. I think in some ways the, with Brexit, I thought it was interesting that when you look at the polling, there's definitely a, you would say a class vote to leave. And if you have a look at um, some of the areas where they got the highest vote, against or to leave the EU, it was actually areas that were benefiting where money from the EU was being pumped in for, you know, manufacturing. But it makes sense, though, because if you think they've been in this, you know, they're old kind of mining belt places and they've been told that welfare, everyone's welfare bludges and that you're nothing if you're on welfare. 
But then yeah. the Labor Party had kind of made this welfare state within the state, which was kind of based on EU funding. So if you tell yeah. people that they're scum, you don't give them real jobs, you're giving them these public service jobs. They used to have jobs they were proud of being minors. It, yeah. It's actually an attack on their dignity. Yes. So I think they were saying, you know, that's up why, yours. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. And that's why I reckon it is tapping into something that's a quite a dangerous emo- emotional uh, in- uh, instability. Not that there's anything wrong with being emotional, but it, what it means is it does lead people to make uh, decisions which can have, you know, it's a bit like that thing about getting married quickly. You can... Um, yeah, what is it? What do they say about uh, mar- mar- marry in haste, um, uh, something other at your leisure? Yeah. <laughs> what would it be? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, where you're I upset what, forever. Yeah, I guess the, the question is, though, that there was there's no... I, I guess no one made a case in that whole campaign that the reason for people's... the that they could draw a line between membership of Europe and people's economic disadvantage. Yeah, there wasn't a left-wing, um, a left-wing voice to leave. There was no left-wing voice to leave. There was no right-wing voice that said, we are members of Europe. I mean, they said, being the reason that we're, we are, you've lost your job or you don't have the job that provides you with the sort of sense of purpose is because we're in Europe, but there's no evidence to back that up. No oh, one none. questions. None. If, no none. None. Questions. No. And and I guess in the US as well, what we've seen is that um, people have are, are quite willing to listen to pedag- what what we call, uh, I guess, um, pedagogues, um, ideologues, and and um, not pedagogues, um, um, sort of the the um, demagogue the demagoguery of Trump rather than seek any real evidence for the state of the country. No, they're angry Um, and that's all there is to it. So they've just gone to lurched around. But also there's something else to do do with this. Like the figures that have come out on in the Australian, I'll have to say, about the increase in popularity of one nation and the decrease in popularity in liberals... uh, it seems to me, right, then, and the Greens having reduced their popularity in their poll, this this yeah. is part of advertising because, in actual fact, uh, One Nation has done nothing. It's purely that it's been mentioned more times. Yes, I think there is a sense that the um, the Australian, I think the Murdoch press, and Trump is, is like this as well. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Yes, and people said that at the very outset um, of Hanson. You know, um, if we, the, the more that people ridiculed her, the more you know. As Oscar Wilde famously said, "There's there is nothing worse. Sorry, the only thing worse than being um, negatively spoken about is not being spoken about at all." Correct. Yeah, about yeah, and I think that's you know there is certainly, and I mean Thatcher knew this in the eighties. I mean when the IRA were bombing um, the UK. Her plea to the to the British press was, "Don't give this any any press. Um, terrorism survives on oxygen, and I think, you know, on the oxygen of, of being spoken about, of being sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of propelled to the to um, in people's um, thinking. And I think that 
Yeah, absolutely. What we're seeing with Hanson in Australia and Trump uh, is this... this. I mean, Bernard is receiving a huge amount of press at the moment for what is, I think, a, a storm in a teacup. Yeah, it's hysterical. Did you hear what his quote was? Something about being, um, you can't trust any politicians, even though I've been a politician for 30 years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what a moron. This is the same thing Abbott said before the election that he won. Um, no, I think it was the election that, that, that led to the hung parliament. When he was at, at a town hall meeting at the um, Rudy Hill RSL and he was asked about government funding for public schools, he said, you cannot trust the government to deliver on anything. So we should give all this money to the private sector to distribute it and we, then we'll get efficiency. He said that in a room full of people and journalists, and not one person said, hang on a sec, mate, you're the government. You want to be the government. It's unbelievable. The people, yeah, that, that's what I've been saying to people. Why did people vote for people that don't believe in government and well, don't even Reagan, understand it? Reagan won the 1980 election, a lot, of, a lot of pundits say, on his claim, I mean, of course, this is reducing it to one factor, but on his claim that governments are not the solution, they're the problem. <sighs> It's that outrageous. was the famous statement that he, had, he said, and that was all, I, that became almost his campaign slogan. Um, and then people voted so, for him into the government. That's right. So you know we have this, but but that's been a forty or fifty year project by the right, and there's a, now a really good literature demonstrating how um, think tanks and the right wing press and right-wing political parties have propelled this idea around the sort of suspicion and, um, and a lack of trust or distrust in government, elites, intellectuals. And that's, you know, the science, the science deniers around climate change have had this long history on which to build this, you know, this, this sort of movement today. I mean, you know... The, 2.4%. I was talking to someone the other day and I said 97.6% of climate scientists believe in Anthropocene global warming. Mm. Yep. 97.6. Yeah, that's global warming said, oh, uh, assisted by human endeavour. Yes, as a result of human. And he said to me, of which scientists? And I said, climate scientists. And he said, exactly. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. And he said, yes, the very people who benefit from um, from that science. So that means that we're not just talking about people who believe in climate change, but believe that the Earth has been pushed into a new climate yes. age because of it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and what they're but, saying is that because they're climate scientists, they're going to push this. They're, what they what they're turning on their head the whole notion of corporations pr- promoting. Uh, Negative outcomes for society for their benefit. Yeah. So the the, the, the you know the irony of this is <coughs> that people are that the people who benefit from the science denial are saying don't believe the people who do science climate because they benefit from science from the science that they do. Oh, that, so do you see pathetic. what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, it's yeah. so yeah, pathetic. Yeah. I think as well, yeah, it's. That, there's an interesting new strategy with Trump. His media strategy, I don't think that it's entirely um, incohesive. I think that in some ways they're just 
bullface lying about reality to mm. kind of prepare people for, you know, and all the talk about fake news. It's like if they yeah. just put enough noise out there, then people won't believe anything. That's right. And then someone yeah. else said to me uh, that uh, this is everybody's watching the lights and movement and noise, but what are they doing behind the scenes? Yeah, what, what, what are no they diverting people's what, eyes about? Well, and no one's listening to what's being said, mm. per se. They're, they're, they're instead looking at the, the sort of, what we call it, the circus or the, 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 um, the pantomime that's occurring and not so much the substance of what's happening. I think, yes, there's a certain, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, this is a Hollywood film. It is all special effects. There's no dialogue. No, it's horrifying. And I'll tell you something else. Yeah. If I don't know if you've seen uh, John Pilger's latest contribution, which is called The War on China. It, it advances this rather uh, compelling argument of American endeavour, which has been to, over quite a considerable amount of time, building a bases that look straight into China in a ring and uh, up the, behind them as well as uh, on the sea. So what yeah. he, he's advancing this notion that uh, the biggest uh, uh, problem for the Pacific, probably the world, but the Pacific is America's interference with uh, Pacific. It reminds me of Rome, actually, you know, when they're declining power economically, they still have the largest army, so they set up these garrisons around the world. Oh, there you go. Yes. I, I, there's something more, for me, there's something more happening here in that I don't think the U.S. is genuinely, genuinely threatening China. Oh, good. I know that, yeah, I, I think what's happening, and I think the Chinese elite are aware of this. The Chinese good. people may not be. Um, I think the Chinese are elite, uh, and I think it is a little bit of the declining economic power, sort of declining economic power, because one thing I read not long ago was that something like 20% of, of um, investment in China, FDI, foreign direct investment, American. U.S. capital. Hmm. Yeah, so U.S. capitalists are still benefiting from the growth of China. Um, and, you know, there is that close linkage between Chinese growth and, and the propping up of the U.S. dollar. And there's a whole range of other sort of very, um, what we call it, sort of um, um, reciprocal arrangements that the elites are benefiting from, not so much the population. The Chinese population a little bit, I guess, in terms of the export economy, but only in that trickle-down, that very uh, sort of... Limited. Um, um, limited trickle-down. Uh, but what the US is, effectively today, economically, is a military, industrial military complex. Right. In the, far more than it was when um, Eisenhower... Um, mentioned uh, it. Mentioned it. And, and actually... Not just mentioned it, but he did. He sort of warned yeah, America yeah. not to go down that path. That it needed to be. It need, and today, the U.S. is a military, industri military industrial complex. So it needs to fuel this idea that there is a global threat. Now, two thousand nine eleven in two thousand one gave them that opportunity, and they went into Iraq, and then they had a decade of war in the Middle East that. In, in the name of protecting themselves, but that fizzled out. It was hard that's right. To they need a new. They need a new one, don't they? Yes, and then China emerged as uh, emerging economy. But really, you know, when you think about the military capacity of China and the U.S. to threaten each other, uh, uh, China to threaten the U.S. It, and even if it, it becomes a regional um, sort of 
dominant power, which it probably is, it still doesn't affect US, the US system. In fact, China is playing its part. Well, that's exactly what the China... That's one of the commentators said, Chinese commentators. Never in history has been two economic uh, concerns been so intertwined, he said. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, Mm. he said exactly what you just said. And he also said uh, that um, basically uh, China is not interested in taking over the world. He also said something interesting. He said that uh, America is... uh, 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 China is not a capitalist state in in that they've got the uh, government oversees the economy, while in America, the economy oversees the government. Yes, uh, possibly. I mean, I think capitalists in in uh, I would I would say the similarity is that the interests of of capitalists in both countries oversee the state. <laughs> so you know, there you Chinese go. capitalists are doing exactly what the U.S. capitalists are doing. Yeah. They're doing it through the Communist Party. Mm. That's the US exactly right. doing it through... Yeah, for me, it's the similarity that are striking, not the differences. Yeah. We, I we, think we, the we one thing think. is that the Chinese can maybe do things a bit quicker sometimes, change yes. things a bit quicker. Yes. We have yes, to finish. We, we have to finish, Noah. Oh. Oh, we've just oh, got... God, where did that half an hour go? Go, exactly. Know. We'll have to pick up next week or the week after. After. Yeah. yeah. All right, brilliant, guys. Thank you so much for a great convo. Bye. Thanks, Noah. Yeah, and we really do have to finish. We uh, started off with a report about the homeless people in the CBD in yes. Melbourne. We went on to Sticky Institute's fantastic event, events today and Amazing. tomorrow. Yep, get down. Get down there. And uh, we followed with uh, This Is The Week That Was... And we just had a wonderful conversation with Noah. We could talk his ear off. Yeah, that's right. Solidarity Breakfast, finishing, signing off. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to finish with Hey World, Michael Franti Spear. Grass was greener years ago I swear it used to grow here But no more here Tell me why on this hill all the birds... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.